probably the worst one I've, I've ever been involved in is something I can't even really talk that much about because there's an active FBI investigation into some funds that were in my IRA. And that is really upsetting. This is someone who came along who was doing some crowdsourced funding for real estate deals and then ended up not actually engaging the people that he had said he had done. Um, and that one is especially heartbreaking because I also had my kids' investments in there. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Natalie Morris. Natalie, are you ready to rock? I believe I am ready to oh, rock. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, let me tell the audience a bit about you. Natalie okay. is a former network news anchor turned personal finance educator and motivator. Her specialties include personal finance, business, and technology. Natalie is currently a contributor to CNBC and MSNBC, where she was previously an anchor. Prior to that, she was an anchor on CBS Interactive. She was also a contributor to CBS News and The Today Show. She has also contributed to CNN, ABC News, G4 TV, BBC, The CW, Fox News, Fox Business News, and Univision, the Spanish language reporting network. Wow. So our audience has probably seen you on one of those places. Natalie, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, that's who I am. I used to be a TV talking head. And my husband and I, when we became a family and had kids, we had a lot of disruption in the career that we thought that we would have. I think most people have something like that. When their kids are born, they're like, well, this isn't what I thought. I actually didn't have an option to go back to the job that I left before maternity leave. So I had to rethink it and rethink what I wanted. I thought that I wanted to just have the baby like a fancy purse and then do everything I did before. And that's a rude awakening. So when I was waiting for my agent to call me back and waiting for, you know, the sort of new derision of my career, I realized I was very proud at the time. Like we need to have our own bank accounts. I need to have my own money. And then my money dried up. And so we were living off his money. And that was a really big ego challenge for me. I didn't realize how connected I was to being someone who had a six-figure paycheck until I didn't. And I started to study for personal finance because at that juncture, I felt like I have two options. Either I become the wife who's like extreme couponing while I'm waiting for the next job, or I become the wife who's really good with the money and doesn't actually shrink our lives to fit one paycheck. I wanted to expand our lives. So I said, well, let me teach myself more about personal finance and investment so that if I don't have a paycheck coming in, then my efforts now will be equal to a paycheck coming in because I want to be really good with investments. So at the time, I had a freelance gig at CNBC, so it was easy to just be immersed in finance. But I also started going to the library. I would go into at the back of any newsroom, you know, you get all kinds of books because finance authors want to send them to the networks. You've probably done that before. And I would just pick out what I wanted. And I was so going to the library and picking books off the back of the newsroom. And I sort of realized that there's a lot about personal finance that we're not really taught in school, especially in America. Personal finance is taught unevenly at best. Mostly it's just how to 
balance a checkbook and automate your savings. And I didn't want to do that, but I especially felt very passionate about being a mom who used to be, I'm going to flatter myself and say high performing lady. And then all of a sudden I'm in sweatpants all day and I'm at the park with these other ladies who maybe are wondering who am I now versus who I was before this baby. And I really rejected this sort of like, well, this is who I am now. My husband handles the money. Like I felt like women like me had an option to relegate themselves to a secretarial position in their lives, in their families. And I did not want to do that because my husband could hire someone to pay the bills. He could hire someone to know the password to the power company, right? I, I thought that I was worth more than that. So I put all of my effort into doing that. And then I started to write about what I was learning. I sort of called myself the chief home officer. Like I am the money. I am the decision maker. My husband's very good at finding investments, but it's me that keeps the spreadsheets. It's me that has the vision for like, this is where we are now. This is where we're going to go. So, and also I was raised by a small business owner, an entrepreneur who my father always made me keep a balance sheet of my own personal finance. So I knew how to like forecast. I knew how to understand where I was. I knew how to set goals. What I didn't know was how to work as a team inside of a family and how to employ all the skills that I had been using in my career to personal finance. Because when we got married, someone said to me, you know, when you get married, you're in a business together. You have goals, you have to team build, you, you want to go somewhere together, you have to play to each other's strengths. And if you don't see your family as a business, you'll tread water for the rest of your lives. You're, you have to do it together. So that became our message. And we really decided to share with people how we did it, how we do it, what we're always learning. So that's what we do both on our own websites. Mine is nataliemorris.com. Natalie has no E in it. And then we also have the Financial Freedom Academy where we teach other families of all derivations to work together so that they can really get in the driver's seat and plan out you know, their own wealth building and goal setting. Because I don't see how it can be done. You know, I, I see like the commercials for these rich housewives and I think, how is that possible? How can one person be involved in financial success and the other person is not? That to me blows my mind. I don't understand it. Do you? <laughs> That's very hard. I mean, actually, I have kind of a burning question after you've gone through what you've just okay. explained. What's burning? The, the, first, the first part of the question is, when, when you first looked at the idea of learning finance or learning investing okay. type of thing for yourself, you mentioned about the books in the back of the studio or the books at the library or whatever. You know, how did you feel about what you were faced with? Was that a tiny amount of information, a lot of amount of information? That's the first question. And the second part of that question is really, how does a typical woman or man who knows nothing about finance, who's actually not that interested in finance, how, mm -hmm. how can they possibly figure this out? Now, I'm, I'm, I suspect what you guys are doing through your academy and the other work that you do is trying to, to bring that all down. But I'm just curious how you felt when you first looked at it. You may have been excited, like, wow, so much cool stuff I can do. But my second point is, how does a, a woman or a man who just doesn't have that interest in it deal with it? Well, so what I did and what we try and encourage people to do was I sat down and I made a balance sheet for my family. So 
you know, if you're familiar with any kind of small business, you know, a balance sheet is just a list of what you own, a house, a car, you know, some stock accounts, and then a list of what you owe, your liabilities, right? Your mortgage, your car payment, your student loan, and you tally them up. And so I, I had always kept this for myself because my father was very strict about it. I couldn't go out on the weekends unless I had updated balance sheets. He's just a spreadsheet nerd like that. Um, I'm sure I will torture my children the same way. So I had that for myself, but I never, again, I never did it for us as a family because I was so proud about money. I didn't like talking about money with my, my husband. I, you know, I always wanted to just like write my check for the half of it. And I was like, look what I'm made of. Right. And so that when I realized, okay, there's nothing for my half anymore. I have to approach him and say, we have to now live off of your paycheck and we have to figure out how to do that. So before I had this conversation with him, I made a balance sheet for us together for the family. And so I had a list of what we owned together, separate and together, but really all in one list, and that what we owed. And then I decided I'm gonna do better with just one thing on this list. So that's what we teach in the Financial Freedom Academy because it's too much, right? Otherwise you're like, okay, how do I reduce my mortgage? Where should I be putting my investments? Is this debt too heavy, whatever? And so we just say, okay, we're gonna teach you about the things in this list but until you can just decide, okay, I choose one thing that doesn't overwhelm me, then you can't do anything. So you could start anywhere. Where I started was our IRA accounts because that felt safe, right? We don't live on our IRA accounts. We can't touch them. So I felt like I could sort of, there was some safety in learning how to invest those. Then we went to our mortgage and we decided to reduce our mortgage significantly. We wrote a book about it, how to, how to pay off your mortgage in five years. So that's another thing you can do. But each thing, if you're just focusing on one line item in the balance sheet, will teach you the skills to get to the next thing. But if you look at it as a whole, it's too much. That's, it, that's a really good point. Because then I started reading these books about how many fees are in your funds and your IRA and your 401k. And I got myself all worked up and pissed off. And then I was like, well, where, where do I put them then, right? So yeah, that wasn't getting me anywhere until I decided, okay, take one thing, learn the one thing. And that teaches you the language of finance to go to the next. And I was a very different person when I was on that first line item than I was, than I am now. Like even today, I'm trying to refinance this house that we have seller financing. So we bought it from the owner. I only have five years for this interest only loan and then I have to refinance it. So I'm trying to refinance right away because I just don't want an interest only loan. And I notice that I have a higher confidence level speaking to lenders now than I did back then when I was starting, when I was pregnant with my second child. And I'm so nervous and, you know, okay, am I asking the right questions? And now I feel like I have no ego about it. I'm like, okay, explain this loan to me like I'm four years old and I'll tell you if I want it, right? Mm -hmm. There's a confidence level there, but I did not have that then. I'm trying to inspire other people to have it and more specifically more women to feel this way because women leave so much on the table when it comes to their skills and their finance. You know, we don't have to just be administrators in our house. We have to get in the driver's seat too, at the very least in the passenger seat, but not the back seat, right? Yep. Yep. Not just a secretary with that's again. And, and I think one of the things that really upset me so much is around that time Pinterest was starting to take off and it was like, Oh, how to feed your family on $5 a week or, you know, how to, 
darn socks. So you never, you know, and I was like, that's wrong. Not that you shouldn't recycle your socks. That's very, you know, economical and a great thing to do, but I don't know how to do it. Right. And I don't want to focus all the time on shrinking my life because Mm -hmm. that's what I'm worth. I want us, all of us to expand our lives. Okay. I have a couple of quick things on that. Uh, The first thing for the audience, I think you can't see it on the, if, if you're listening to the podcast, but behind me is many, many, many books in my library. And someone once asked me, you know, how many books have you read? And I said, you know, I don't know, thousands and thousands. And like, how did you read so many books? And I said, I read them one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so I like, yeah. I like what you're saying. And I think for the audience, you know, take one small step at a time. The second thing is that I'm kind of lucky in a way in that I had a, I had a female heavy family. I have two mm-hmm. sisters and my mother and my father and I, you know, we did our thing, but my mother was actually pretty involved in the financial decisions of the household. And my mother and father worked together over years to build financial security so that they lived a period of 20 years retirement without financial trouble. My mother, when my father passed away a few years ago, my mother moved to Thailand with me and she's financially independent. And as I said, you know, like you did it. And yeah, it was the point. The last thing I would say is that you can never get to true success in business and in investing or in building wealth by cutting costs. There is a limit to cutting costs. The other part has to be, how do we grow? So anyways, I think there's a lot of good takeaways on that. And I think now we're ready. But I think that that's very surprising, especially for someone like me. Mm. I'm a Virgo. I'm very organized. And the marketing is very good around people like me who had big Mm. jobs that you automate your savings, that you maximize your 401k that, you know, and so when you say to someone, you cannot save your way to wealth. And then for me, I was like, well, that's very threatening. I don't like that thought. Of course, you can save your way to wealth. The commercials told me to. And then you realize what a 401k is. So because, you know, again, like I'm a rule follower. I I like to automate the savings and maximize the 401k. And then I go to the spreadsheets and I do the math. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's very hard to save your way to wealth. That's almost impossible. And that is a very hard paradigm shift for someone like me. So if I can do it, then I hope that I can present to other people how they can too. Yep, that's great. And um, one last thing, you've got so many nuggets that uh, we haven't even gotten into the main question, but it's so many good <laughs> things. But I was just writing and speaking about something here in Thailand about the trade-off between reducing volatility in a portfolio, which everybody likes to talk about as advisors and stuff, and shortfall risk. So if you reduce volatility in your portfolio, it means you basically put your money in the bank, let's say. So yeah. at the end of five years, 10 years, that you're going to have that whatever 100 or 1,000 that you put in, it's going to be there plus some interest, but it's a tiny amount of interest. But the point is there's no volatility. It doesn't go up and down that much, so you feel safe. Right. On the other hand, we have like, oh, you know, go on the wildest ride of buying the most speculative things would be the other end of volatility, which, you know, would be taking on too much uh, risk. But the point is that the main point is that if you fight and you follow advice to reduce volatility, it means that you're probably giving, uh, you're, you're exposing yourself to shortfall risk. That means that 20, 30 years from now, you're not going to have enough money to retire or to be financially independent or to hit your goal. So, yeah. uh, and, and many financial advisors completely miss this point because 
you're, you're much more likely to try to advise someone right now, how do you control your, your interaction with risk and are you low risk, high risk? And part of what I talk about in my book, How to Start Building Your Wealth Investing in the Stock Market is that in some ways that's a bit of nonsense. Really, mm-hmm. you, in order to build wealth, you have to take a very long-term perspective, 20, 30, 40 years. And yeah. in, in order to build wealth, you have to expose yourself to equities, the stock market, and the stock market is going to have a high amount of risk. That risk over time is what causes the actual growth. So anyways, those are some fantastic nuggets, I think, for the listeners. And uh, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. I've thought about this all day in preparation for this show. And I honestly feel like I can't choose which one is the worst (laughs) because I've hit my head a lot in terms of investing. I bought Enron back in college, like right before it collapsed because there was great media buzz around it. What I didn't read was that it was bad buzz. I am probably the worst one I've I've ever been involved in is something I can't even really talk that much about because there's an active FBI investigation into some funds that were in my IRA. And that is really upsetting. This is someone who came along who was doing some crowdsourced funding for real estate deals and then ended up not actually engaging the people that he had said he had done. I had an investment in San Francisco. So I'm giving you like little tidbits and then you Mm -hmm. can choose which one you like the most. I would love to tell you about the one where there's an active investigation. I just can't right now. Um, And that one is especially heartbreaking because I also had my kids' investments in there as well. I have plenty of properties like one off that just like didn't turn out the way I thought that they would. And, you know, for the most part, those investments, those properties are only bad for a small amount of time because we like to invest in real estate. And in real estate, most of your bad stuff is pretty short term. And if you sort of stick it out and find a creative solution, you usually in the long term can make money. My grand, my grandparents are like your parents, um, have a very similar story. They invested in, um, they invested in warehouses in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 50s, I want to say, late 50s or early 60s. And they built industrial warehouses in a very crowded space. This is, uh, they're in Hayward and Alameda. Mm -hmm. So if you know the, the Bay Area, those are those are really desirable cities to live in. And my, my family have had these investments for over 50 years. So, you know, the mortgage on them was paid off even, you know, when I was like 10 or maybe even before that, before I was born. And so my grandmother used to cash rent checks. They, they divorced when I was young, but that's how she lived. She'd be just like, okay, rents came in from the warehouse. Grandma's got money now. So she never had to worry about pension. She always had plenty of money. These were big warehouses. So I had this idea early on that when you invest in real estate, things will go bad, but you're playing the long game. You own something, right? That you can affect. So when I've had properties before that sort of didn't go the way I, I, I wanted them to, or, or, you know, they turned into money pits, I realized, okay, you have to come up with some kind of real creative solution. If you lose your head now is when you lose. If you keep your head about you, 
then eventually, you know, you're going to come up with something and this will pay off. So even I had a condo in San Francisco that was in downtown San Francisco. And that one was really hard to manage because it was a class. And for some reason, those tenants really like tore up my property more than any other like B class, C class property I've ever had. And those tenants maybe are a bit more vocal about their rights. Like I have the right for my dog to pee on your carpet and not pay for it kind of thing. And that was really upsetting because I didn't have a good property manager. That was actually one of my first investments. And so from that, I learned to always have a property manager. And then my husband and I also got into business with someone within the last five years, and we were helping other people invest in off-market properties. And this person was actually a fiduciary. He was selling all the houses and we were getting a referral on any investors that went through him. And towards the end of our relationship, we realized that a lot of the rehabs he had said he had done, he had not. And so that really ended up exposing us to a lot more liability than we ever thought possible. Maybe that's a good way to frame this discussion because you've mentioned two stories that have to do with trust. Yeah. The first one is the one that's under investigation. The second one you've just talked about is the one yeah. related to, and, and that I've gone through my six common mistakes from all of my interviews and mistake number four is misplaced trust. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's a good one to talk generally about, you know, how did you get into things, you know, and, and think about what our listeners could learn about how to not be sucked into something what would be the signs? Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that's, that's one angle. Yeah, that's a good one because although to be honest, you know, this, these are things that I've fixated and most of them sort of came through our lives in 2018 is when it all, like everything started to really like crash in on us. And we thought, how did we not see this coming? And we look back through our communications and we look back through how we began this relationship. And it was really hard to pinpoint how we could have otherwise known. And so I've thought about this as more of a soul challenge than maybe like a practical challenge, because I don't know how I otherwise would have seen that this person was this, or this was misrepresented. Uh, because like I said, a lot of our messages, like teaching people to be in the driver's seat, run your numbers, run the risk, understand who you're dealing with, do your due diligence. And so I did that. And so I think for that reason, you know, after all of this happening at the same time, like the IRA one, and then this business relationship, I really started to, for us, it, it, I started to like seek out healing in any way, like not just from the practical, obviously I have good lawyers, you know, so there are two big lessons that I took away from this is that from a spiritual perspective, whatever spirits you believe in, if it's God, if it's spirit animals or whatever, like I had been led towards all of the steps that I needed to protect myself before this happened. So for instance, I had been working really closely with estate lawyers to make sure that we had not just trusts, but domestic asset protection trusts, um, which is like, you know, individual trusts and then like big mama daddy trust, right? Like it's basically the closest thing to like an offshore trust that you can have in the United States. And I had decided to 
educate myself on that and establish those trusts before we had any any problems, right? I had also decided to educate myself on different insurance plans and we decided to open what's called the captive insurance plans. These are kind of like advanced investor tools, but I had decided, you know, that I, it was a good use of my time to learn these things. And so I realized that a lot of times when a big soul challenge is coming for you, you have been prepared in ways that you did not know. And then when it hits, you're like, oh, that's why. And I think that a lot of times, you know, I'm just going to use like this kind of spiritual guidance some kind of spirit is putting or some kind of guardian angel or something is putting in front of you the people you're going to need the books you're going to need the podcasts that you're going to need the information you're going to need and i feel like those are like like hansel and gretel crumbs along your path and if you pick them up you will be more prepared for the soul challenge when it comes but i have thought many times of what if i hadn't picked those up what if I ha had just stepped right over them? Then by the time I got to the soul challenge, I'd be screwed to the biggest or, and it would hurt more to say, I could have read that book. Mm -hmm. I should have called that person. I could have hired that estate lawyer. Right. And so for me, that's been the bigger soul challenge than how could I have trusted that person? Because that's harder for yep. me. Okay. That's, that's a bit harder. And let me, uh, go through this. So this is your first lesson learned about your spiritual preparation. And um, what I would add to it and tell me what you think about this, but is that, you know, some people see it as God's will, as an example, you know, that I, I'm searching out for God's will. Somebody could say, it's just, it's just the right path for me to travel in life or whatever we may call it. But what I would argue is that the right path is usually not too difficult. If you find yourself getting in too much difficulty, it, you may want to step back. And I would say that's my first point about the spiritual preparation. The second one is intuition. And this is, speaks even more so to, to women than men, where I believe women have, are more in touch with their intuition. And that is that if you're going down a path and you, you get some signal that you feel something just doesn't seem right, what I've learned from all of my interviews is that the intuition in the time of investing is only a very short time. And then all kinds of other things overpower intuition, like yeah. logic and reason. And you've got a really tough sales spreadsheet. Right. You've got a tough yeah. salesperson <laughs> that's trying to sell you something. So I would say that, you know, when you think about spiritual preparation, you know, look for a path. It's not necessarily the easiest path but it makes sense and it feels right. The second thing is that when something feels wrong, pay attention, bring that up. But for me, you know, to realize that I had sort of weaved this layer of protection around my family without knowing what I was doing, to be honest, I had just had, you know, I was about to have our third child. My husband was making good money and I felt like, well, what's there for me? You know, like I've, set out the estates and I, I've set up all of this stuff, but I felt like, well, this will be a good use of my time, you know, and, uh, and sort of my like angel on the right shoulders, like do these things because they're important for your family and you just never know. And you have the bandwidth and they've been laid out in front of you. So read this book, talk to this lawyer, hire this accountant, right. And become really familiar with what they're doing with your assets. And then devil on the left shoulder is like, you're just a bored housewife. Like, the, you know, you're, 
this is not worth your, why are you doing this? Like go to the mall. Right. And so I really listened to these inspirations and I feel like, you know, I've been reading, uh, rereading lately, Joseph Campbell. Um, and he talks about the, you know, the hero, a hero with a thousand faces is his main book, but his whole writing is about the hero's journey and that everyone has an opportunity for some kind of soul challenge. So the fact that you have so many people who want to tell you about their bad investments means that all of these people realize that they've been presented with an opportunity to respond to a soul challenge by going one way or the other. And what they may or may not realize is that they were prepared for this or given the opportunity to prepare for this beforehand, whether you did it or not. I'm, I'm a big fan of Jim Rohn. My parents used to take me to his um, seminars because he let teenagers in for free. And there's something that always sticks with me is that what's easy to do is easy not to do. So a lot of times when the universe is preparing you for something with a podcast or a book that just for some reason, you know, falls off the shelf while you're walking by or a friend brings it up for no reason, right? That's some kind of spirit saying, you're going to need this. I'm going to put a pin in it. It's up to you whether you do it or not. What's easy to do is easy not to do. It's easy to, to ignore it to not do that, to watch Game of Thrones, right? It's, it's, you know, just a little bit easier is also to read the book. Like, it's usually not that hard to just do it. So, you know, I have sort of seen these big challenges in the last year or two as an opportunity for me to say, well, you know, normally in like this hero's journey, right? You, you're guided by some kind of like spiritual being. Like, I, I like to think of, I think a good analogy of this is the movie Brave, where she's like got these wisps that are leading her into the forest because she feels this desire. Like, I want something more, right? So she follows the wisps. So that's sort of how I see myself in the last maybe five years is I did follow the wisps. And then you get into this scary time. You're at what he calls the belly of the whale, right? And you're like, well, how did I get here? I don't know what the journey is. And you have help along the way. And somehow you come out of it a different person. And it shows you, you know, what you're made of and what you're supposed to learn from it. For, for me, I could go an hour about what I'm supposed mm -hmm. to learn about this. And then when you come back out, you know, you sort of reassimilate into society and you share what you know. And so that is sort of where my husband and I are. That's why we launched the Financial Freedom Academy because we have been in the belly of the whale. And we faced this not just practically with lawyers and accountants and insurance plans and things like that, but also spiritually, you know, okay, what did we learn from this? Were we prepared enough? You know, how can we prepare better the next time? Yep. So yeah, that's where I find myself now. It, it's interesting because uh, I was interviewing one person and I said, what advice would you give someone who's facing the same situation? And they said, do it, like make the mistake. Make the mistake. Like, yeah. You know, I was like, wow, you're supposed to tell them to avoid it. But he was explaining that what he learned through the process of the mistake was extremely valuable. And it, it's hard sometimes to tell people, you know, don't do this. And, you know, but can you avoid the, sh the soul journey though? Like, you know, I, I know in finance, we want to just always be up, 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 but like, there's so much value in actually going through it. You know, like Joseph Campbell, he says, you know, refusal of the summons converts the adventure into a negative. Like then, you know, if you don't answer the soul journey, if you don't answer the call, then basically you become like this 
boring schmuck, right? Yeah, He's yeah. walked in boredom. He says hard work or culture, like the subject then loses the power of significant affirmation, action. And then in the story, now you're the victim, right? Because you didn't answer the soul journey. You didn't try it. You didn't lose, right? And you didn't have any pain to speak of. So now you're just like damsel in distress. Who wants that? Yeah, you okay. Know? I think that's a great, um, I'm thinking about the title of this discussion and it, it's, it's maybe embrace your soul journey. The idea that your mistakes, yeah. your successes and your mistakes are part of that journey. Um, we, I mean, for us, I don't see how we could have avoided this in, in the more practical, you know, we could have, we, we definitely could have been more risk averse. We could have stayed in our news careers. Mm. You know, I, I just feel like, saying, oh, I wish I hadn't have done this or that, you know, it's harder to judge the practical, the practical pieces of it, but it's much easier for me to respond to the actual, like, what, it, what is this trying to teach me part of it? So, so why don't we bring it all down together into one piece of actionable advice? And it, this advice really takes a lot of years that you've been learning and your own soul journey. As there's a person out there listening to this, who's at the beginning steps of their investment, you know, process, what one piece of advice would you give them? You know, look for the next book, like, you know, let, let it fall in front of you and then read it, follow the wisps of whatever is trying to, you know, this podcast could be one thing. Maybe I mentioned my book about paying down your mortgage and you're like, I'd like to do that. And you read the book, the book takes an hour, right? That's an hour. You could again, be watching game of Thrones or you could watch that in a rerun or, and read the book, right? The, I mean, you always have a choice in every, it, maybe it's not my book. Maybe it's someone else's book. Maybe tomorrow someone's going to say, listen to this great podcast about this, right? And then you hear someone that you like and you decide, I want to know more about this person or I don't, right? I liked it, but instead I'm going to what, right? Every moment gives you an opportunity to see, is this preparing me for something that I need to know? Let me give it some real thought, right? Not everything is. There's plenty of things that I pick up a book and I'm like, that's not for me. Yeah. But I maybe, you know, understand why people want to talk about it or whatever. But you have to in your life, you know, if you read A Hero with a Thousand Faces, you realize all mythology has this story to teach us about how we are being prepared for our own hero's journey. Got it. Um, whether I come out of this, you know, like I'm still involved in a bunch of painful things. So I may not come out of this a hero, but I'm not going to quit either. And I've learned a lot about myself. And also, I'm, you know, despite all of this, like 2018, I got hit in the head, my husband and I, many, many times, painful times. And if any one of those things was the only thing that happened, I would have cried for six months about it. But because it was so much, I really learned that I can sit in hot water for a long time. And yet I'm still not afraid of money. I'm still not afraid of investments. I'm still like willing to take on a seller finance deal and talk to a lender. I still, there's still part of me. that's like, Oh, you know, I'm stronger little housewife than I thought. Well, so that's a good, you, that's, you that's cannot good. be afraid, right? But that's a good lesson for the, for the listeners out there is that you're stronger than you think. And when you face difficult challenges out there, the reality is, is that you can make it through. Let's wrap up with the last question, which is what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I would like to see these things through. I, I don't want my life to always be a part of, you know, th this challenge. And, uh, 
you know, any challenge, it's, it's a small percentage of your life if you live long enough, but I want to find a way to share it in a way that's meaningful because most people won't have this gravity of a soul challenge in a short period of time, hopefully, but I want to be able to find a way to share it, which is, you know, in alignment with my highest and best purpose. So while my husband and I were going through this, like I said, we launched the Financial Freedom Academy and it's done really well. It's just a way to show people what we did, like make your balance sheets, evaluate your assets, make better decisions about what you've got. It's very practical. It's not real estate based, but it can be a sort of next level, but it's, it's very much about make sure that you're making good choices. And so I want to find a way to put that in the hands of people that need it the most so that whatever soul challenges have to do with money in their lives, they are not afraid. You know, there's part of me that feels like I wish my soul challenge was actually slaying a dragon or wrestling a bear, you know, like it's not very sexy to say my soul challenge had to do with like legal and money stuff, but it's just the currency that we live in right now. Like this level of challenge, maybe in a different lifetime was wrestling a dragon. (laughs) But right now this is what it is. And I have to face it with the same bravery that I would have if I were fighting a troll. So right now, you know, I want to be proud of how I come out of this, but I also want to say that Anyone who's facing like the worst investment, right? This is just their opportunity to slay their dragons. Right on. So you're just having your soul challenged. So learn from the challenge. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And if you or someone you know has a story to tell, just click on the social media or email icons of your choice on my worst investment ever, and that will go directly to me. As we end, Natalie, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I do not. I think I laid it all out there, but I appreciate you being empathetic and uh, letting me talk. About yes, that. it's my pleasure. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.